And greetings, everyone. You're listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. This is Art Hour. I'm your host, Mike Malson. And I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, you told me about a guest that we were going to have this week. Uh, and who do we have? We have Dean Davis. Welcome, Dean. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to be you. here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't know really anything about you, and I just happened to. What was the name of that thing that that um, that where they let people, the public, come into the artist studios? That's where I, I saw you. I went into your studio. Yeah, that was the uh, Mac uh, Artist Studio Tour. Yeah, and so there were what. Seven, eight studios that were involved. Yeah, yeah, six or seven, I think. I I don't know the exact number. Yeah, uh, that were involved. But I did it the first year that they had it, which was I think mm, three or four or five years ago. And then uh, I hadn't done it. And then they um, had an artist drop out just before the last tour and called me up and asked if I would fill in. Uh, I think it was Hazen Odell was supposed to okay show, and he got called out of the country to do one of his. Do you know Hazen? I don't know Hazen. He does those uh, survival sort of reality TV things, goes Uh, and lives with with polar bears, you know. When you say does it, do you mean he's the one, he's a contestant (laughs) in it? It's not a contestant. It's like a National Geographic uh, survival show where he goes and, I don't know, lives with tribes for 60 days or three months or some dang thing. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Nice work if you can get it, I suppose. He's (laughs) also a great artist, too, and and he was supposed to, his uh, studio was supposed to be open for that. Okay. At any rate, so I wandered into your studio. You're you're yeah. a commercial photographer, yeah. And um, you started telling me these stories about you know being a Dutch translator, and <laughs> yeah. you made me laugh really hard because in his studio he has this. Um, I mean, it's probably three feet by three feet print of uh, these skies, uh, high rises, and there's kind of three or four in the one in the background, one in the foreground, but it's all kind of flattened by a telephoto lens, and it just mm-hmm. looks like this really. I mean, just uh, just so many people living in this photograph. And I said, "Where was that photograph taken?" And your joke was uh, Post Falls. <laughs> <laughs> people usually go, "Really? Well, no, not really." <laughs> That's a good one. So, so when he said that, and I laughed, I thought, "Okay." Okay, that's a good yeah. one. So, and then as I was wandering through there, I mean, I saw that there were um, there were so many uh, awards on the walls, and and it seemed like you had had such an interesting um, career already. So I thought I wanted to come in here and find out how you got to do what you do. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so uh, I mean, I, I did a little reading on you online. Usually, I don't, but I wanted to get a little background. And um, you you started with your love of photography at high school at, at U High, right? That's right. Yeah. So yeah. how did and and because we're both teachers, yeah. Uh, I was kind of curious. Was there was there some teacher there who sparked it, or was, did it just happen in high school? Uh, you know, I took a class that was called photographics, and it was um, half graphics, half photography. And uh, it was that, you know, when I got to the photography portion of the class, it was just, I just, I was really enamored with this, with these cameras and with making images. And I just remember holding on to my camera one day and looking at it and thinking, gosh, it'd be amazing if I could make a living with this someday. And uh, there was a teacher, Ted Clark uh, was his name, Mm. and he ended up going on to some district position uh, and was really involved here for many, many years. and, you know, I was probably, I was a terrible student uh, for him. In fact, uh, in, in, I, was, I was actually a pretty good student, but I had one, I'd failed one class in high school, and it was my advanced photography class. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel so bad for Ted. But, uh, you know, it was a self-paced class. We had like 10 assignments to do. 
Uh, I did like two of the 10 assignments and I was shooting the whole time, just going out and renting airplanes and flying around and shooting and shooting modeling portfolio, things that had nothing to do with our Wait, assignment you list. were renting airplanes while you were in high school? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't flying them myself. Right. But you, you, airplanes are surprisingly inexpensive. Right. I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not necessarily shocked about the cost, although I, that would be weird that a high school student would be able to afford that. But that you would think, I love photography so much, I'm going to rent an airplane. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that should have told That's, your teacher something. I mean, did he know you were doing that? Uh, he probably s- saw some of the work that I was and doing. And he still failed you? Well, he did. You know, he kind of <laughs> had to. You know, I didn't do the they, work. They uh, didn't have standards-based grading back then, <laughs> uh, Eric. <laughs> but uh, I'm really fortunate, you know, that I, I did run into Ted many, many years later. Uh, what, you know, and I'm a, uh, I'm a professional this time when I run into him, and, and I'm able to both apologize to him mm-hmm. and thank him uh, for being such a good influence. And he's had me come speak. He was like the head of like high school counselors or something for, I don't know, the state of Washington or some dang thing. And I remember one time he had me come speak to a group of like 300 high school counselors about huh. uh, arriving at your career via a circuitous route, mm-hmm. something like that. Now, you say a circuitous route, and it yeah. was a circuitous route yeah. just from the brief conversation we had before we're coming up here. So you did not go into photography right out of high school. No, I went into the military uh, while I was in high school, in fact. Uh-huh. Uh, I went into the Army Reserves and went to basic training this summer between my junior and senior year. Now, is this, you thought you were renting a plane, but you were actually inscripted in the military? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I was raised in the military. Okay. Uh, we traveled a lot, you know, as I mentioned, I was mm-hmm. born in Germany and we lived in the right. Philippines and other foreign countries like Mississippi and uh, Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more jokes. If you're from Mississippi <laughs> or Oklahoma, please don't send me hate mail. Uh at any rate, uh, I wanted to go and travel as an adult. I loved all the adventures I had as a kid, and I wanted to keep doing that. And so that's what drove me to go into the military. And 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 I did it early. I did it as early as I could. I came back. I graduated from basic training three days before my senior year started and came back to Spokane and then went to reserves one weekend a mm-hmm. month at a drill sergeant school. Uh, and then after I graduated from high school, I went off and did my training, came back, spent another year in that drill sergeant school before going off to Fort Lewis and Turkey and Monterey and... And you um, wanted to be a photographer in the military, right? I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. I tried to go in the military as a photographer, and uh, I'm red-green colorblind, which is not a super uncommon thing, right. really, for men. Um, pretty uncommon for women, but for men, it's very, uh, like, one in ten of us have some form of colorblindness. Hmm. And uh, and I'd always known that since I was a kid. I had some issues with recognizing color. But uh, it was a non-waverable condition for being a photographer in the military at that time. Um and so I ended up going into personnel administration initially, and then that I... That sounds exciting. <laughs> you know, it wasn't bad, really. Uh, I've got all kinds of great stories about how good it was actually being in... Uh, imagine uh, Radar O'Reilly, <laughs> the company clerk. Uh, that's kind of what I was. And um, a lot you can affect a lot as the company clerk. Right. You kind of are in charge of your own destiny, which was pretty nice. And you ended up doing languages instead, right? I did. Well, I got, while I was in Turkey, I got really interested in uh, the Language Institute, uh, Defense Language Institute, which is at the Presidio of Monterey. And uh, I went and tested for it, got accepted. And so when I left Turkey, I went to Monterey and, uh, and studied Dutch uh, for seven months and then uh, off to Holland. I actually lived on the German side of the Holland-German border on a NATO Air Force base. You know, I was in the Army, but I was uh, assigned to an Army Pershing Missile Detachment that was on this NATO Air Force base. Um, 
Yeah, which is where I finished my career. I spent about three and a half years there. And the whole time you're shooting too, right? Oh, yeah. Gosh, I traveled nonstop. Um, you know, when I'm in Turkey, I'm traveling all over Turkey and down into Israel, and I'm, I'm hiking all over the place with a couple of old Canon AE1s. I was in Greece all the time. I only lived about 45 minutes from Greece uh, out on the Gallipoli Peninsula, right where the Battle of Gallipoli took place. Great uh, movie with Mel Gibson. Yeah. <laughs> so lots of uh, I did a lot of traveling then, and, and I shot a lot of film. Um, and then Monterey, and then to to Europe, and again, I I traded my cameras in, got a, a different camera, and and kept traveling and kept shooting. And now, when you say you mm-hmm. shot a lot of film, so you've got you've probably got just boxes and boxes and boxes and shelves and shelves of photographs, right? I do. Do you put those anywhere where people can see them, or are they just sitting on your shelves? Well, uh, I happen to have every single photo I've ever taken. That's um, intense. Which I, it was purely by accident that that happened. Um, but now that I'm a you know professional photographer, I was able to cull all that stuff together, and um, I have some of that stuff. Uh, I might even have one or two of those images on my website from Europe, uh, from Paris. Um, if you search through my website, you might find a couple of old black and white images that look like they must be in Europe, and they are. Hmm. Um, those are from the, that time. Yeah, and all that those years taking pictures of, of all your travels. When you got out of the military, is that when you decided to? pick it up professionally as a career or was there another kind of a circuitous route that you were still traveling? Well, it was my intention when I got out of the military (laughs) to pursue photography as a career. And, uh, you know, I moved back to Spokane. Um, I went looking for a job that would allow me, I signed up for school and went and looked for a job that uh, where I could work at night and go to school during the day. Uh, I only applied at one place. Uh, which was a place called the Fort Spokane Brewery. It was Spokane's first, uh, and at that moment, the only microbrewery. It was a restaurant, live music venue. I remember I went back like every two or three days until um, the general manager just went, okay, God, <laughs> Jesus, we'll hire you. you <laughs> know? Why did you want to work there so yeah. bad? Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't really know what it was uh, about it. You know, maybe because I'd just come from Europe and had really gained an appreciation for good beer. Um, and, and then I come to you know, back to Spokane and that's the only place where I'm seemingly finding, you know, um, fresh local, you know, craft beer. Um, I, I guess that was it. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure why that, why that place. And that was the only place I applied, but they hired me, uh, as part-time kitchen help. I remember the general manager said, well, we need some help in the kitchen. Are you ever cook? I said, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> cook for myself all the time. You know, and I mean, I had just gotten out of the military, so I, I knew how to walk through a chow line, you know, and that was it. But uh, they put me in the kitchen. I worked in the kitchen one day, and then they made me a waiter. Oh. I did that for two days. They made me a bartender. Uh, it, you, you could say it was an environment that was easy to excel in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so in a month, I'm the night manager all of a sudden. Wow. And within nine months, I'm the assistant manager, and I buy out one of the owners. Mm. And at that moment, I drop out of school. And, and how old are you at this time? Oh, I'm 23, four years old. I'm wow. pretty young. Man. Now, uh, did that your your classes or your course in drill sergeant, or did that, is that part of your personality to be, you know, draw a line and that's where you're going to go from point A to point B? Well, I wasn't, you know, I was at a drill sergeant school, but I was not a drill sergeant. I was working at the school. Um, but I think the military, you know, my time in the military certainly had an impact on uh, on me, I think we're all a sum of our experiences. Um, 
I s- so you're yeah. working at, at Fort Spokane Brewery. You're mm-hmm. the night manager. Had they been doing music very much at that point yet? So they were doing music, uh, and it was kind of a mixture. It was swing bands, uh, reggae bands. Uh, they had some blues bands. Uh, they were doing some like top 40 bands. They were really doing a kind of a, a real broad mix of music. And when I took over as assistant manager, uh, one of the things, one of my roles was to book the music. And I, I remember going through, we already had a lineup of music on the calendar that I that I did not book. And I remember just kind of doing some, uh, not very scientific, but some, some kind of surveys about the crowds that were coming in. And, and generally the swing bands brought in a crowd that was a real heavy water, water drinking crowd (laughs) (laughs) and pretty demanding about, I want my water right now. (laughs) Uh, you know, the reggae bands brought in a crowd that maybe they weren't wearing shoes. Maybe they were smoking dope in the bathroom, which at the time was not cool. Uh, you know, the the alternative bands brought in a real young crowd with fake IDs, inexperienced drinkers. They're throwing up in the bathroom. Mm. <laughs> uh, the, blues, the blues bands would bring in a crowd that was, you know, 30 to 50, uh, had some money in their pocket. They weren't thrown up in the bathroom. They were really nice people. They, it was a really good crowd. And I thought, you know what, I like this music and I like this crowd. And so I made the decision to just sh- switch over and become blues exclusive. Mm-hmm. Which kind of led to an experience for a few years uh, with uh, uh, another colleague of yours doing radio. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't remember which came first. I think uh, we started a blues society here in Spokane called the Inland Empire Blues Society, which is still alive and active today. Uh, again, this is a pre-internet era, and... You know, really the the thought behind starting the Blues Society, I I have to admit, it was very selfish. It was a way to get the word out to people about Mm -hmm. what we were doing at the Fort Spokane Brewery. I mean, that was really the goal. Uh, The Fort Spokane Brewery was the sponsor of the radio show on KKZX, the Blues Show on KKZX as well. Mm -hmm. And I had been a guest on that radio show a number of times promoting bands that I'd booked. I started booking these national touring acts to play at the brewery. And uh, and so I would go on the show and help prom- promote what was coming up. And, and then that DJ who was doing the show left Spokane. And when he left, he recommended to the station that either myself or Ted could do the show. And they interviewed both of us, and we were both pretty, you know, frightened <laughs> at the prospect of doing it. We both <laughs> said, uh, I would do it, but not by myself. I'd want a partner. And Ted said the same thing. And so they hired both of us. Uh-huh. And uh, they had the guy. It was Gary Yeoman, who's back in Spokane now. Uh, he was the one who la- who was leaving. He showed us how to operate the board, and that was it. <laughs> there was never one word of direction given to us by the radio station about what we could or couldn't play, say, say. do. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's FCC regulations, of course, mm-hmm. but uh, it was amazing. I mean, to be in commercial radio and to have such you know, uh, latitude to do whatever and play whatever we wanted. It was pretty fantastic. And again, we were both scared shitless. We were no. awful. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that is the first time. The first time. <laughs> we, <laughs> that is the first time. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I'll try to make it the last. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, no, that's uh, fine. That's no. fine. Yeah, speaking of the FCC, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Anyway, we uh, it we ended up doing the show for years, and of yeah. course, we got a lot more comfortable with it, and and uh, it was I had a great time. Doing and the through show. that, though, you actually and on the way up, you were talking about some of the 
you know, heavy hitter blues musicians, you yeah. know, B.B. Uh, um, King and Buddy Guy that you actually got to meet, right? Yeah, you know, as, uh, you know, as hosts on that radio show, uh, and, you know, it was the number one show in Spokane on Sundays for a lot of years. We were more than double, uh, I don't know how the ratings work, but it was a very su- successful and popular show. And as such, when uh, any time a blues artist got booked into Spokane, we generally were asked to be the MCs mm. for that concert. And so, you know, like guys like BB King. Um, in fact, I remember uh, we did the intro for BB King. This was at the Opera House, and I'm sitting in the dressing room with BB. And I ask him, I say, "Hey, would you mind recording a promotional bump for a radio show?" <laughs> He said, oh, yeah, I'd do that. And <laughs> he asked everyone to leave the dressing room except for me. And I had just written it down on a bar napkin, you know, what I wanted to write. And I set it down in front of him. And he says, he starts and he says, well, hello, this is B.B. King. And I, oh, yeah, I messed that one up. Let me do that one again. And he goes back in and he redoes it again. And I kept the whole thing. You know, it was just brilliant. <laughs> he, was such a, he was such a sweet guy. And, and I loved the mistake that he made. And he starts doing it again. And, and of course, did it flawless the second time. But for the promotional bump, we kept the entirety oh, of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you'd have to. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, now, as you're doing that, are you also snapping photographs of these guys as well? Uh, good uh, no. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, the only, um, you know, one of the only musicians I remember photographing back in that time was, um, was uh, God, he just passed away here uh, last year, uh, Tom Petty. Oh. Um, I got to go hang out out at the Gorge and photograph him. Uh, and medium and uh, but these other guys no these other guys I really wasn't spending a lot of time with my camera in their face yeah. I was mostly you probably weren't spending a lot of time with your camera at all at that point you know I wasn't uh, I had shot a couple album covers uh, for guys like uh, Too Slim and the Tail Draggers right mm-hmm. Langford. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, they played my wedding. Uh, oh. oh, yeah. He did a slide guitar wedding march. All right. Oh. I think of Jimi <laughs> Hendrix's slide yeah. guitar Star Spangled Banner. But Timmy's doing that oh, with the wedding awesome. march for me. It was so amazing. John yeah. Cage is an old family friend. Oh, yeah. I love those guys. Yeah, yeah they yeah, were awesome. Yeah. I still am in touch with John Cage. Oh, you know, right on. Yeah, he uh, he pulled us over on the uh, freeway in Oregon, <laughs> uh, and we said, "Hey, we're coming." And, he, and so he's a motorcycle cop oh. in Oregon. <laughs> yeah. So we're driving down the freeway, and he pulls us over and gets <laughs> gives us a hug. Oh. That's awesome. <laughs> he's a crazy yeah, guy. I love he's John fun. Cage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're doing that. Yeah. So yeah. you're bringing in all these people, and you. How long did you do that? How long did you... Well, I spent seven years. Uh, so seven years in the Army, seven years at the Fort Spokane Brewery. Okay. And uh, so you were kind of the promoter. You were the one bringing in yeah. uh, all yeah. these people. Yeah. Did yeah. you enjoy that aspect of it, the promotion aspect? I mean, obviously, you enjoy listening to the music. Uh, you enjoy making money. But was the promo- Oh, I loved it. I mean, I was... Gosh, I was. I had a chance to bring in some of my heroes. You know, I was listening to a lot of music then, and and uh, the opportunity to bring in guys like uh, Little Charlie and the Nightcats or Charlie Musselwhite. I brought Charlie oh, Musselwhite mm. in three times. Wow. And I love Charlie mm. Musselwhite. Uh, I brought a couple of Grammy winners in, John Hammond. Mm. Uh, gosh, it was an amazing time. Uh, it was um, stressful, too. Yeah. Because we were doing a lot of music, and uh, and not every show was financially successful, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a crapshoot, but overall... Um, it was a great time. Any any kind of just unique stories from any uh, of those guys that you just mentioned? Uh, you talked about Buddy Guy, you know, and Charlie. Were they all just <clears throat> were they all just great guys? You know, that are touring around or <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. You think they're going to be these hard partying. You hear stories about that. In fact, mm-hmm. I was told 
uh, by another music promoter in Spokane at the time. After he heard that I booked Charlie, he said, hey, well, you you better make sure you have a gram of cocaine or he's not going to take the stage. <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> so I'm not doing that. You know, I'm not. No, there's no way. And so I was a little bit, you know, I was a little bit uh, uncertain what was going to happen when he shows up. And uh, he shows up and he's just the sweetest, nicest guy who doesn't, you know, I, I imagine at one point in his life he did party pretty hard. But I think like a lot of those guys, yeah. it's not sustainable. You don't they, last that long. No, no, no. That, they get no. to a point where they just give that stuff up. Yeah. And, and he drank coffee. Uh, I told him I, at the time I was starting to learn how to play harmonica and I had played one of his songs with, uh, with, uh, with too slim hmm. with a couple other bands, uh, poorly, <laughs> you know, at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I told him, I said, Hey, the very first song I played on, on in front of anybody was river hip mama. One of your songs. He goes, Oh, well you should come up and play it with me tonight. <laughs> <I'm> like, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> but thank you. Uh, yeah, I know he was a sweet guy. Uh, we had a couple of, there's a couple, just a couple of bad experiences, but o- overall, mm-hmm. most, most of those guys were just super sweet and been on the road a lot. We're just real grateful when somebody would take care of them. And we did. We took really good care of the artists. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. You're listening to KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. You can support KYRS by drinking delicious coffee every first Monday of the month. KYRS gets 10% of the proceeds at Cafe Affogato. Cafe Affogato is located at 19 West Main in Spokane. Information at 868-0011. And Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine. That's at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. And I play this promo every week uh, because my friend Jukebox Jenny does the show, but this is uh, doubly appropriate this week. You should listen to Jukebox Jenny on Sunday nights. Hang out with me, Jukebox Jenny, on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. to hear America's very own music, the blues. Let me help you shake the trouble out with a mix of funk, R&B, and blues from Delta to Chicago. You'll hear... Don't forget to shake your rump, too. It's a cocktail that will soothe the soul. Working Woman's Blues, Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m., right here on KYRS. So I was asking Dean as we were listening to that if he recognized any of that. And, of course, he has a story. (laughs) What was the story about that? Uh, about Susan Tedeschi, yeah. she was, I think, the first uh, um, music underneath her speaking there, and we booked her at the f- at the Mas- into the Masonic Temple, the blues uh, the Blue Society did many years ago, when she was about twenty six years old. I don't think she had won her Grammy yet, mm. uh, but she was on the verge of winning that Grammy and and exploding. And God, what a, an amazing show! That, that was, was a great venue. I saw Buddy Guy there. I saw yeah. John Mayall there. Uh, what happened? Why don't they have shows there anymore? You know, well, that's that's yeah. changed hands a couple of times. You know, it was still the Masonic Temple ran by the Masons when we were booking shows oh, in there, okay. mm-hmm. and that was a new thing for them, uh, booking. Uh, so new, in fact, that we would rent a room for three hundred dollars for one of those ballrooms, mm. which is uh, mm-hmm. insane to think of that you could rent a room that size. Yeah, uh, for that kind of for that little, 
but uh, yeah, it's 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 notoriously difficult place. Uh, the it, it needs some upgrading. The electrical uh, service in there is challenging mm-hmm. to work with um, when you try and put a band in there. Gotcha. Okay, we need to finish our business. Sorry, we need to talk about our underwriter. I just got carried away by that. Uh, Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month keeps KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting GIVEKYRS to 44321. That's GIVEKYRS to 44321. Very good. Yeah, I did. I already read it. Oh, you did? Uh, Yeah. Okay, I missed it. I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, what happened to Fort Spokane Brewery? Why did it close? Oh, you know, there's a host of reasons. Uh, but, wh- you know, I like to tell people this, uh, that every business that ever opened will close. Yeah. Every restaurant that ever opened will close. Uh, it's just, that's just the nature of, of business and the nat- nature of the restaurant business. It's a, it's a notoriously difficult business uh, to sustain. I mean, think of your favorite, think of Cyrus O'Leary's. You know, people, that was a mainstay in Spokane. Shenanigans. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So there was a host of reasons. That building that we were in uh, was a Skid Row Hotel when it was brand new. <laughs> you know, and then fast forward 100 years, and we're occupying it. Uh, there's not, there wasn't a stitch of insulation in it. Uh, it, was, it was a really challenging space, a very inefficient space. Uh, the, you know, the, the business was undercapitalized from the outset, and that makes it difficult. Uh, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> Combine that with being undercapitalized. <laughs> but would you consider uh, it successful financially yeah. while you were doing it? You know, it had a it had a good run for for a while. It made money. It lost money. It sustained itself for you know for a dozen years. Um, it uh, it created a name for itself. To this day, I have people who will come mm-hmm. up to me and lament, "Oh my gosh, the Fort Spokane Brewery! What an amazing place that was!" It was. And I can't believe you know that it's closed and. And I guess I'm not that nostalgic about it. Um, I, I I can move on. Well, pretty, we got to see all the highlights. You got to see everything else too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, w- the restaurant I- and bar I- business is a tough business. Yeah. I can tell you. So did you get transitional out? workforce? Yeah. That's one of the pr- that's one of the challenges. That's how you rose how to, to such great heights yeah. so quickly, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so did you get out before it closed? I did. You know, I mean, I kept my ownership stake in the place, but mm-hmm. I left at the end of 96, and uh, January 1 of 97 was the first day of my photography business. Uh, but so I kept I kept my ownership stake in the business, and we closed it in uh, January 1, uh, or December 31st of 99. So yeah. we closed 2000. Well, I'm always fascinated by people who take that leap, you know, because mm-hmm. some people are, they dabble in photography, or they have the side hustle of photography. Mm-hmm. But what what kind of preparation had to go into you saying... This is my business. This is what I do for a living. Well, I was really fortunate. You know, the the first nine months that I was working at the brewery, I was still going to school. And when I was going to school, I was also assisting a commercial photographer here in Spokane. He came and spoke to our class one day. And when he left, our teacher said, hey, he's looking for an assistant. And I think you would uh, would be a good fit for him. So I go and apply. I show my portfolio. He hires me. I work for him. Uh, when, I, when I quit school... Uh, and buy out one of the owners of the brewery. I also quit working for him. But he and I stay friends, and we start playing a bit of golf together. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of golfer that when I come off the golf course, when you say, hey, that third shot you hit on number <laughs> six, like I don't, I can't remember that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or I don't remember, but at any rate, uh, I remember this very vividly. He and I were out playing golf. It was the summer of 96, 
Uh, we just uh, teed off on the number 11 hole at Esmeralda. We're walking down the fairway. Mm-hmm. He turns and looks at me, and he says, Hey, Dean, he said, I know that you don't want to work in the restaurant business your whole career. I know you want to be a photographer. He said, what would you think about leaving the Fort Spokane Brewery and becoming my partner? And I thought, oh, wow. You know, and at that moment, I had been still shooting a little bit, but I was not, I had not been aimed at a career in photography at that moment. And it seemed like, wow, this seems like a, a golden opportunity. And I remember I went home and talked to my wife about it. And we, we spent the next six months preparing financially. And at the end of that year, I left the brewery. Um, and January 1 started, it was Convoy Davis Photography. And like I said, we prepared for me to not make any money for a full year. And uh, I not only met that goal, I exceeded <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, it was a tough, you yeah. know, like, like, a lot of, like a lot of small businesses. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's tough to get started. And I went through two failed partnerships in my first two years in business. And, uh, and some other struggles. And, and But just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunately, or, or however you view this, my wife and I uh, don't have children. And that affords us a lot. A lot uh, of freedom. Freedom, yeah. 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 Uh, money, uh, time, energy, um, all those things. And uh, after a couple of years and it not being successful, we had a discussion about what was going to happen, what we were going to do. And, and we made a decision for me to just keep pushing forward. And mm. things kind of just kept, you know, it was kind of a turning point once I made that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been in business now 23 years. and uh, So when you, so you're struggling for the first couple of years. So what was there a moment or an account or a time where you felt like that kind of shifted, where you felt like, oh, this, this might be a thing that, that, that will be really successful? Um, you know, sort of. There, there was a, a situation where, you know, once we made that decision that I was going to press forward, at that moment, like I said, I'd been through mm-hmm. two failed partnerships. And after the second failed partnership, I didn't have a studio. I was, so I'm working out of my house, and, which is not a great situation mm-hmm. for a commercial photographer. Um, and we made the decision for me to press forward. So, okay, well, I'm going to go look for another studio space. And uh, my wife's boss at the time, she's a graphic designer, and her boss uh, found out that I was looking at studio space up on Francis, and he called me. And he said, hey, Judy, Judy says you're looking at a studio space up on Francis today. I said, yeah. He said, well, there's some space downstairs from us. Would you consider coming and looking at it? He goes, it should be a lot easier to work with you if you were right downstairs. <laughs> I thought, well, that sounds good. So I went and looked at my looked at the space, the, the space you've been in mm-hmm. now, uh, just the front office. That was my and, and what year was that? Uh, that was 99. Because that, that must have been a really different area. Oh, in uh, yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those of you who don't know. It's always know been a very colorful neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. It's, if, you're, if you are <laughs> in Washington Cracker Building and you're looking out the main double doors, it's the first building you see across the parking lot. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's still, it's still probably um, interesting down there, but not as interesting as it was in 99, huh? Yeah, it was interesting in a different way. You know, the House of Charity <laughs> wasn't there. In fact, the House of Charity was on this block. Oh. Uh-huh. Right next door. And so this block in 99 was not a desirable block. Yeah. This block yeah. that we're on here in this radio mm-hmm. station. This is now v- a really neat, neat neighborhood. It wasn't in 99. Mm. Um, so you've been in mm-hmm. that space that you're currently in since 99. That's right. And I was in that front office. I was renting at the time. And I remember I walked in and looked, and it was just the front office. I thought, well, it's kind of a small room, but uh, it's got tall ceilings. And 
Exposed brick. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I asked the guy who was renting it, I said, how much do you want for rent? He said, well, electricity is included. I said, oh, okay. I said, how, so That's how, always how much is it? He said, well, you get a parking spot out front, too. I'm like, all right, how much? He said, it's $150 a month. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. Now, I mean, granted, it was just that front office. Right. But I made that work. I was in there for a year, and then I rented more space from him and more space until I was renting all of his space. And, and then I bought that part of the building about 16, 16 17 years ago. Uh, what was the turning point, though? So you... Moving in, Just, moving yeah. into that space. Uh, how was that right yeah. there? How was that the turning point? Well, I was downtown. Oh. Um, I had this uh, design firm right upstairs from me that was started funneling work to mm-hmm. me because I was right downstairs. It was very convenient for them. Uh, I was downtown. There was other ad agencies downtown. Uh, when I first got into the business, I was way up on the north side, and I, I didn't think a commercial photographer needed to be in the heart mm-hmm. of things. But but being downtown made a huge difference. And uh, White Runkle, uh, who was handling AT&T at the time, I was downtown. Uh, I started getting work. I started getting AT&T work. Uh, I started getting work with Itronix, uh, these other tech firms that are in town, Packet Engines. Um, I remember going to the store after I got that space and buying supplies, and there was a, uh, a pack of coffee filters, and there were 300 filters in the pack. And I remember when I bought it, I thought, Man, if I can just make it all the way through this pack of filters <laughs> to, to 300, I'll be able to make it. And I have that, that 300 filter. Great, yeah. I kept it. I've got it at the studio. It's down in the basement. But oh. I put it in a frame and, and kept it. It was a really, you know, I, when I got to that 300 filter, I thought, I made it. Yeah, That's right a, on. You know, this yeah. is gonna, I'm going to be okay. So back then, uh, the kind of photography did, the commercial photography, yeah. just very straightforward? Or did you have kind of a style... That, that through word of mouth, people decided, you know, they're going to give you their business. No, I really didn't have, uh, I really didn't have, didn't have a style then, and I, I don't really feel like I have one now either. I mean, I really see myself as a generalist, and if you show me uh, a style that you want, I'm pretty confident in my, in my ability to create that same look, but I don't have a, a signature look. Um, you know, I didn't know this at the time, but I realize it now, and I, you know, I did learn it over the years, that the three most important things in being successful in this business, and it's true with a lot of businesses, uh, are the ability to get someone to know you, to like you, and to trust you. And if you can make those three things happen, um, you're probably going to make it. You can be average at what you do and make it. You could be the greatest photographer to ever drop on the planet, and if you can't get people to know you, like you, and trust you, you are not going to make it. Hmm. That sounds like something I say to my students about once a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, it's so, so true. It really is. And oh, well, I, you, I have a, you know, I get along with people. Yeah. So You do have, at least I think, somewhat of a style in, in the use of your lenses in some of your, hmm. at least the things I've seen in in your space, anyway. Uh-huh. You know, the Gonzaga, the, the, the arena, and, and some of those yeah. things. Is But is that... Still, kind of a just a generalist type of a thing I think as so. part of the project to do. I mean, I I, I do think that uh, I I think I can see a high level of craftsmanship in my work, but I don't see a specific look or feel necessarily. I mean, I think it looks different than your photography, probably. Mm-hmm. And I uh, one would hope. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, I would hope. Um, <laughs> 
but it's like anything, you know, if you do it day in and day mm-hmm. out, week in and week out, you get better at it. Yeah. And I was not a great photographer early on. I mean, I dropped out of school after my second quarter of class, and I never did go back to school. And so I had to spend a lot of time uh, reading and, and teaching myself how to be a photographer. Now, when you approach, say— I I've, still do I've, that. I've seen your pictures of Gonzaga, like he was talking about, in your studio— do you approach it like a cinematographer and think, for this particular job, I want this type of style, this type of palette, this type of lens? I mean, are you thinking about it that way? Or, I mean, how do you approach doing so many different jobs? Or is it more just along the lines of somebody says, this is what I want it to look like, and you do what they, what they ask? Well, you know, I get a, I get a broad variety of asks. Uh, and I do when I work for an ad agency. Uh, generally, I get a very specific layout that I have to shoot to, very specific art direction. Mm. But the bulk of my work is not with ad agencies; it's directly for clients. And uh, you know, I talk to them and get an idea of what they want. Uh, generally, uh, p- particularly at this point in my career, they'll tell me, "Hey, we just want you to do your thing," <laughs> <laughs> which is nice. It is, and it isn't. You know, it's great, but at the same time, I want to make sure that my thing matches up with what's in their head too so um you know i just have those conversations with them Uh, i don't know i mean i i think it's still about storytelling um you know whether i'm shooting a product or an architectural space or uh i'm out shooting heavy industry i do a lot of that uh, big engineering and uh, infrastructure stuff um or even just shooting headshots i don't know you know a lot of my clients think i'm working for them that I'm shooting for them. I mean, they're paying me, but uh, I'm always working for myself. Which kind of leads me to the next question because I think, so it's commercial. You're you're selling this, you're doing it for a client. Business to business, yeah. Right. And Mm -hmm. And I'm not, in asking this question, I run the risk of sounding like I'm, having an insult but you know you separate art and commerce and i know you try to bring some art into your commercial photography but do you do still do photography for yourself that you would consider i I don't ever think i'm going to sell it that you're just kind of experimenting and Mm -hmm. and trying new things that just come straight from you all the time uh it took me though until maybe 10 or 12 years ago before i finally uh warmed up to the notion that if if I see something and think, hey, that's kind of cool, oh, right. <laughs> you know, I'm in a position to do <laughs> something about do. that. <laughs> so I started doing that about 10 or 12 years ago. And so I always have personal projects going now. And, uh, and those have translated. I've had uh, a half dozen fine art shows. Um, I had a seven-month-long exhibit at the MAC back in uh, 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on a project right now that will start touring the state uh, the Mac is managing that tour, and they have. Uh, I'm told they have ten venues who are interested in the in the exhibit so far. And uh, what is the exhibit? Is there a theme uh, to it? There is, uh, and in fact, you can see part of it already. Uh, it's called Pictures of Poets. Oh right, right, okay. And uh, so I'm photographing poets, and I'm making audio recordings of them doing their poetry. And uh, there's two outcomes to this project. One is a website, which is picturesofpoets.com. Uh, and I have 158 poets on there now, and I'm continuing to add poets. Uh, and then there's this. Uh, there's also a touring portion of this uh, Pictures of Poets project where we're going to select 20 to 30 of these poets and create 40 by 60 frame prints. And these these frame prints uh, they tour around. And mm. and when you are in a at the gallery, 
uh, or at the museum where these are, when you stand in front of one of the prints, you use your f smartphone with your headphones plugged in to access the website, this Pictures of Poets website, and you pick the poet that you're standing in front of, and with your headphones in, standing in front of this huge, large-scale print, you're listening to the poet. They're in your head while you're looking. Oh, that's really at, cool. At yeah. How did you like decide that. to do that? Uh, it started as a portrait project. You know, I was just sort of inspired by a couple of different, uh, by the artist Chuck Close, uh, mm -hmm. who does these very large-scale heads, mm -hmm. pa paintings, mm -hmm. and uh, the British photographer Platon, who uh, sometimes uses this uh, shoot-through umbrella, which is a very old-school way of lighting, and I was just kind of combining the two notions uh, in the studio after watching, um, I think, a documentary on Platon, and I had already been looking at some Chuck Close stuff, I think, the day before, and um, you've been to my studio, so you see I have a lot of art there, and mm -hmm. I look at uh, uh, art a lot. Um, at any rate, I shoot, I have my assistant sit down, and we set up the shoot-through umbrella. I shoot one image, I look at it and go, I want to do a whole bunch of big heads, <laughs> high-res big heads. And how did you choose poets? Well, it took me six or eight weeks of working on the look and feel and writing lists down. You know, I knew there had to be some continuity, some thread that ran through the people I would photograph for the project. And at the Arts Awards a couple years ago, we named Mark Anderson the Spokane Poet Laureate. Mm -hmm. And he came up and he received his designation and he read two poems or performed two poems, however you want to say it. Uh... And I just sat there in my chair, and I thought, man, this is really neat. And uh, I went home that night, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I thought, oh, poets. Mm. I'm going to photograph poets. I thought, gosh, I hope I remember this when I wake up. <laughs> you know? and, and I get up the next morning, and I remember. I'm like, yeah, poets, that's great. And I thought, oh, but I have to hear them too, because that's really what triggered me landing on poets, was hearing Mark read his poetry and so I added this audio component to it, and right then and there, I mean, the project really kind of really it, it kind of gelled and just kind of came mm -hmm. to life. And and are they uh, all local yeah. poets? So it, uh, you know, the initial idea then was that it would be area poets, and so I went to the Mac, and I pitched uh, having a show at the Mac with this whatever I was going to come up with, and uh, Wes Jessup, who's the director of the Mac, said, "Hey, you know, this is a really neat idea. You should take it statewide." Mm. Oh, and cool. you should let us get involved and we could market the show for you and um, you know to other institutions I thought oh that's a great idea <laughs> <laughs> so I have been traveling around to literary festivals around the state and and it's it's really a Washington centric mm -hmm. project although about a third of all the poets that are on the website are Spokane area poets mm. um, and there's a bunch I mean it's I have been collecting poets from outside of Washington as well. I've got Robert Pinsky, who's oh, wow. uh, the only ever three-time U.S. Poet Laureate. That's a big deal, yeah. Uh, it was a big deal. It was great. <laughs> uh, and I just kind of stumbled into, you know, I feel like I've stumbled into all this stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> like my whole life, like all of these things that we've been talking about. It's like, oh, oh, shit, here I am. Uh, number two. <laughs> That's twice. Uh, that's all right. Yeah, I'm really sorry about that. Oh, you're no. fine. You're fine. Hey, I've always wanted to push that button, and now I get to. So that's <laughs> exciting. You're getting good practice. Yeah, yeah. Good practice, yeah. yeah. Do you have any uh, influences that influence, I guess, maybe the more artistic side of your photography mm -hmm. that, you know— that's kind of where I'm going down. Well, uh, I do have some influences uh, with my photography. And, one, you know, the biggest influence on my... F I mean, you know, early on in this portrait project, 
Before I landed on poets, one of the lists I came up with was the 10 most important people in the arc of my career. Hmm. Well, I crossed that out because I didn't think anyone else would care, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, frankly. Yeah. But uh, Joe McNally is a photographer here in the United States that uh, some consider him, you know, he's on the list of one of the most important photographers to have lived. Uh, you've seen his photography. Uh, he was the last photographer for Time Life magazine. Mm. Uh, he shot for National Geographic. Uh, he's an amazing photographer. And I went and took a workshop with him down in uh, New Mexico years ago. And uh, I remember the, one of the very first things he said in class was, yeah, you know what? He said, I'm a generalist. I don't have a style. Mm-hmm. You know, and he said, he kind of yeah. said, as, uh, paraphrasing what I said mm-hmm. earlier about, you know, show me something and I, I can match that. And I had been told up to that point in my career, and you, you're taught this in school, and you hear this, that you, you have to find a niche and you have to specialize and create a look and a feel and go after that if you want to be successful. And that never really resonated with me because I want to do all kinds of stuff. And and mm-hmm. as a commercial photographer here in Spokane, I have that opportunity. I'll go from shooting a golf course one day to a hydroelectric facility the next day to shooting product to shooting food in my studio the day after that to corporate headshots. And I like it all. Uh, I could be shooting a gas meter for a Vista and be having, be having the time of my life as long as I'm creating <laughs> Yeah. Images, I love it. I don't care what I'm photographing. That's awesome. Yeah. Is there one particular um, campaign that you think that you just you really hit that one out of the park? I know you've done so much; it's kind of hard to mm-hmm. hard to maybe oh pinpoint boy. one. But is there something that you say, "Wow, that that really is something that that was difficult, and maybe I achieved something that I don't normally achieve." You know, I have a couple of. There's maybe a couple things. There, there was a project I did for Washington Trust Bank where we set uh, the shoot in 1960, and it was a huge production. Uh, we had, we rented the Ferris House, uh, which happens to be one of the neatest mid-century modern homes in Spokane that is fully intact as a mid-century home, and uh, did this huge production, and we've got some super neat images, mm-hmm. and it really looks like it's 1960. Um, you know, we had models and set stylists and wardrobe stylists and hair and makeup people and we've had food stylists on the set we had 26 people on the production team oh my goodness. <laughs> which is unusual for yeah. me um, i think that's me i'm going to try and stop that oh, no, that's all right no big deal uh, yeah. and so you know that campaign i don't know how well it did for washington trust bank but i'm particularly proud of the images that we created doing that as you're um getting that yeah. uh, <laughs> that sound there <laughs> Um, so you, you, you talked about your influences and, yeah. and some of the creative things. How much is um, the, the digital technology, mm-hmm. um, as that's evolved over time, I- integrated into what you're doing now? Yeah, well, you know, I started out as a film photographer, of course, uh, 23 years ago. We weren't using digital cameras right. yet. But uh, I was a very early adopter. You know, I could see it coming. And uh, I was a member of ASMP the American Society of Media Photographers. And we don't have a Spokane chapter, so I was a member of the Seattle chapter. So I was going to Seattle every month for meetings. And I remember one month there was a fashion photographer from L.A. up, and he was showing this digital camera he was shooting with, and I thought, man, that is the future. And uh, I came back to Spokane, and uh, I took a $30,000 loan out. (laughs) <laughs> and bought a camera. It was a six megapixel camera. <laughs> it was $25,000. I bought it, a laptop, and some software to run it. And this was uh, July of 2000. 
and no Jeez. clients in July of 2001 in digital files. Um, dig- digital early on was fraught with pr- problems. And uh, I bought that camera. I mean, I just knew it was the future. And the first five jobs that I got after I got that camera, I shot both film and digital. And film then was either 4 by 5 that's 4 inches by 5 inches, or medium format. We didn't shoot 35 millimeter. The film was just too small for commercial use. So it was big, beautiful pieces of film. And I remember uh, showing each of the five clients the film and the digital files, and all five of the clients took the digital files. And one of those clients was AT&T, and one was D.A. Davidson. What was it that they liked about them? That it was ready to go right then and there. They Uh, could take it and uh. drop it right into their layouts. They could, I I guess, just the convenience of it. And it looked, when they looked at it, they thought, they pulled up the files. They said, yeah, this looks great. Like, okay, great. And so after those four, after those first five jobs, I thought, I am never shooting film again. And I had clients trying to get me to shoot film. I remember a, Right after that, Eli, Eli Lilly Pharmaceuticals hired me to do a project and wanted me to... Sh- they sp- Clients used to spec film. So they specced the fun- film they wanted me to use and how much they wanted me to use. And I said, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm shooting digital now. And they, yeah, we don't like those digital files. Yeah. I said, well, if you want me to do the project for you, that's the way it's... Go- you know, it's the only way I'm going to do it uh, is to shoot digital. And let me tell you, and I told them the story about the first those first five clients and AT&T and Pamel and D.A. Davidson and... And uh, and they r- relent and I let me shoot it digitally, and uh, I had to have a couple of those conversations, but I was able to talk all those clients into. Have you ever gone back to film and tried it again? Never. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're done. You're 2000. That that is not that long ago, but yet you're talking about the the cost of that camera yeah. with a six megapixel, and yeah. now what you can get for thirty thousand, it's probably got to be. The, the 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 evolvement of the technologies yeah, sure. is amazing. You can still buy a thirty thousand dollar digital camera. Um, you don't. You get more than six megapixels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was built on a film body. Uh, Kodak bought Nikon and Canon film cameras and tore them apart and rebuilt them with their digital chip. They're the ones that invented the that digital chip. And then they th- afterwards they thought, yeah, you know what, this isn't going to take off. <laughs> And they basically gave up their rights, and I mean, they they went out wow. of business, you know. But uh, yeah, it was the future. There's no question about it. And uh, it was challenging to learn. Color management was a term that hadn't been coined yet, you know. And that's that idea of taking a picture of a red apple and having it look red on your monitor, and then you make a print of it, and it still looks the same color red. And that's not an easy thing, you know. When you get into the digital world. Everything, it's, um, you know, the digital camera is creating an interpretation. That happens in film, too, but it's all ones and zeros in a digital camera. Mm. And then the monitor is using ones and zeros to display color. Those those devices don't know what color is. Now, looping back, though, yeah. I mean, you don't know what color is <laughs> oh, that's a good that's a <laughs> fair point i mean so it, I, I mean that i didn't it didn't mean it the way yeah, it came out but but how how do you overcome that that color blindness when you have to deal with stuff like yeah that? i think like anybody who has a deficiency in a certain area you know that you just work harder uh, at it and you overcome it and in the digital world um we can in fact sample colors in di- digitally and i can look at the numbers that make up those gotcha. colors and I okay. can, yeah. you know, uh, I can shoot a target when I set up my, uh, build a set and we start shooting before we, before we get into the shoot, we generally put a, a, a target in, in the shot 
that has uh, white, black, and gray, all neutral, very specific. Uh, they're photographic targets um, for color. So we'll shoot a scene with that in there and so that when I'm in Photoshop, I know that that's supposed to be white, that's supposed to be gray, that's supposed to be black, and I can manage the color that way. Gotcha. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So what do you have coming up, Rick? I mean, you talked about your poet um, project, which I think is amazing, but any other big things, or are you just all commercial contracts that you're fulfilling at this point in time? And then also, how do people access your work? Yeah, um, both really good questions. Uh, Friday, I was out doing First Friday, you know, uh, I was at the Barrister Winery, and they, oh, yeah. uh, they, um, the owner of the winery came up and said, hey, um, our March artist um, just backed out. Do you think you could put a show together for March? Cool. So I said yes. And so March 6th at the Barrister Winery, there will be, uh, it will be a, a little bit of new work with, it'll, it'll sort of be a retrospective because, you know, I don't have enough time between now and March 1st, which is, I don't know, I haven't counted the days, 50-some days from now. Uh, to to create a new body of work to fill the Barrister Winery, it's a big place. Yeah, but I do have a whole boatload. You've been in my studio. Um, wait, where you haven't been is my basement. Mm. There, I have another fifteen hundred square feet down in the basement, and it's filled with artwork. <laughs> so, this is art you've collected from other people? No, no, my stuff. Stuff oh, that I've produced. Okay. Yeah, yeah, stuff that I've produced from my past shows and. Uh, Maybe take a picture of your three hundred. Uh, coffee filter, just as a kind <laughs> of a reminder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's going to be March sixth yeah. at the Barrister Winery, and that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I'll be definitely be showing some work that has not been shown before, oh. uh, so it won't be just old stuff that you've seen before necessarily, uh, but it'll be a mixture. Um, that's a big place, so mm -hmm. to fill it, I'll I'll have to bring a bunch of stuff in there. And then uh, for people who want to find me, I'm pretty easy to find uh, on the inner web. I am deandavis.com. I was lucky enough to get on the on the internet when it was still uh, brand new right. and <laughs> get my name as my URL. And so uh, I've got deandavis.com. I've got picturesofpoets.com, which is now is there going to be an exhibition of that here anytime soon? Yeah. So uh, yeah. as I mentioned, the Mac is kind of managing setting up that. Uh, the tour of that show and they will bring it back at the Mac as well. And is that going to come up this year? I don't know. Okay. That's They're managing that schedule and uh, I don't really know. Um, but as you take pictures of poets and get those audio recordings, you're putting them up on the web. So that's right. I just added nine more about mm, two weeks ago. Cool. Cool. But uh, but the, you said they were going to be like 40 by 60 yeah, photographs? The, prints, the, the touring prints, yeah, they'll be 40 yeah. by 60s. That'll be pretty intense. In yeah. fact, if you go to the website, I think there may be, if you do a little bit, di bit of digging, I think there's an about page, and, and you can see an example. I've got an intern standing in front of one of those giant prints holding uh, her phone, looking at the prints. So you can kind of get a sense for the scale. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I mean, the best part about this interview is I had a whole bunch of questions that I was going to ask, but we ran out of time. So <laughs> that's always a good sign. Well, we'll have to come back. Sometime. Yeah, thanks yeah. so much for coming yeah. in. It's, it's been, been my pleasure. Great. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you.